I want to say a very special thank you to all of you that have been so supportive over this last week uh, with the passing of my mother on Monday evening. Uh, the cards, the flowers, the food, uh, all of the, the posts on social media, the messages to, to me and my wife and my family. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, it is deeply appreciated. I want to welcome you to the beginning of a new series entitled, God Has Great Plans for Your Past. And what better way to start than a story from my past? When I was in second grade, yea, verily, in the last millennium, fire was just coming into vogue, stone had recently been invented. And I was a student at Shelton Valley Adventist School. Now, I believe the school is still going. It was a small two-room school. In the second grade, I was in the, one of the two rooms that the school had there. The one through four, those grades were in one room. Five through eight were in the next. There was about 30 students in the school total. And Miss Sullivan was our teacher. Now, Miss Sullivan was exciting. She, she was right out of school, and we all thought she was beautiful and smart and all of this, and, and we all wanted to please Miss Sullivan. In fact, Miss Sullivan could do no wrong until that day came. We had just come in from, I believe it was recess, and Miss Sullivan said these words, students, please take out a piece of paper and a pencil. It is time for your spelling test. Oh, no. Fear gripped my second grade heart because I had completely forgotten that there was going to be a spelling test today. And now Miss Sullivan's just announced it is seconds away and I am absolutely terrified that I am for the first time in my long academic career going to fail an exam. Now, I realize that there's not many second graders that have this level of stridency with their academic career, but I did for whatever reason. And I I, I was, oh, this panic gripped my soul. And, And I thought to myself, what am I going to do? Now, there's really only two choices, right? One, you, you can muddle through it and do your best and, and quite possibly fail miserably. Or two, I could cheat. Uh-huh. Now, the story obviously takes a little bit of time to tell, but this is all happening back then and, and quite quickly, right? If students are pulling out their papers and their pencils. Uh, those of you that are younger, you know what a paper and pencil is, right? Have you seen those? <laughs> Thin white sheets. Uh, ask your parents when you get home, okay? So, so they're all taking these out, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, what am I going to do? So I pull out my spelling book. Real quick, I flip over my desk. We have these flip-top desks. And I pull out my spelling book, and I look real quick. There's, if I remember right, there was 10 words that we were supposed to know for this test. And I, there's like at least half of them that I did not know. And very quickly, when I, I looked for where Miss Solomon was, and when, when Miss Sullivan wasn't looking, I took my pencil, and in like size four font, I wrote the words on my name tag, little name tag they put on your desk so you know where to go after recess, right? You know? And I wrote it down, there, these, these words that I didn't know. <sighs> put the book back in the desk. Miss Sullivan didn't see. She begins the test. I began to work my way through this test. And yes, when the words came that I didn't know, I would look at Miss Sullivan. Was she looking my way? No, okay. And then I would look surreptitiously at my name tag and I would write down the word. I was so glad 
that Miss Sullivan didn't know what I was doing. How do they know? How do teachers know when you are cheating? Yeah, it was she completely caught me by surprise. I had written yet another word from my cheat sheet there on my desk. Miss Sullivan came. She said, Shane, put your pencil down. And she reached down and she took my uncompleted test. Oh. Not only had I just failed the test, I had failed the test in front of everyone else in that room. Oh, I was absolutely mortified. The test finished. She collected all the other ones. She asked for me to stay after class. To be honest, I don't know that she actually ever said anything to me. She could tell that I was fairly uh, self-punishing at that point. It was terrible. I was crying. My mother happened to be volunteering as a school nurse at that time. Uh, She was a public health nurse, and she would take time. She would volunteer at the school. And Miss Sullivan went and found my mother and said, you might want to go talk to Shane. He seems to be having a hard time right now. And so my mother came in, and she couldn't find me at first because I had hidden under a table that was off on the side, and I had my, my knees tucked up, and I was sobbing under there. And my mom, she, she got underneath the table, and she came, and she put her arm around me to tell me what happened. Oh, I cheated on the test, and I failed. It was awful. Two things from that experience. Number one, don't cheat. I never cheated again. Grade school, high school, college, master's, doctorate, never. I learned my lesson. All it took was that, that, that experience with Miss Solomon. I was done with cheating. I hope you are too if you haven't start today. <laughs> Number two, I would have given all the money in the world if I just could have erased my guilt. I felt terrible. I'd made the wrong decision. And I wanted to erase not just those words that were on my desk. I wanted to erase the whole episode. I wanted the guilt to go away. If only I could find an eraser to do it with. Have you ever done anything that you regretted doing? Have you ever sinned against someone else? Silly question, huh? Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we can, we can look back and maybe we can, you know, put some sort of a quaint patina on something. Oh, that was so cute, you know, when that happened, whatnot. But the fact of the matter is, if you live long enough and you continue down life's path, there, there will come a time when you do things that are serious. Something happens. Something goes wrong. You make a bad decision, perhaps a stupid one, that leads to great pain, not just for you, but for other people. And so difficult can those situations be that they will cast a shadow into the future. And you may be listening to me right now, and something that happened days, weeks, months, years, maybe even decades ago is still, as you are sitting here now listening to me, is still casting a shadow over today in your life. What do you do with that? What do you do when the guilt of the past is still overshadowing the present? 
Well, if you've experienced that, or if you're experiencing that now, I have good news for you. Because God has great plans for your past. If you have a Bible, take a look, please, at the book of John, chapter 18, verse 15. John chapter 18, beginning with verse 15. It's on page 729 in most of your Red Pew Bibles. Page 729, John chapter 18, beginning with verse 15. Let me just set the stage here for the story that we're going to join. Uh, The scene is this. Jesus has been with his disciples for about three and a half years. His disciples have been with him through thick and thin. Uh, They have been through persecution from the scribes and Pharisees. They have seen tremendous miracles. They've heard Jesus' great sermons, all these incredible things packed into three and a half years. And now the cross is getting close. Jesus has been in the Garden of Gethsemane. The sins of the world have been laid on him. He's sweating drops of blood. He pleads with his disciples to watch and pray. They cannot do it. They fall asleep. The Roman guards come, Judas at the front. Jesus is arrested. Uh, Peter pulls out his sword and whacks off Malchus's ear. And Jesus says, no, don't do it. Put your sword away. And he puts the ear back on to Malchus. He heals him. And then the disciples flee. And we don't know how long they were gone, but after, I don't know, maybe a few minutes it would appear, at least a couple of them decide to circle back. And they want to go to where Jesus is. Jesus has been taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, for questioning. And that's where we join the story. Verse 15 of John 18. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You are not one of this man's disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Skip down to verse 25, please. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. And apparently, the architecture of this house and the courtyard, the way that it was laid out, made it possible for the proceedings of Jesus' trial, as it were, to be seen by those that were in the courtyard. And we know this because of how Luke finishes out the story. Let me put it up here for you. Luke 22, 60 to 62. Just as Peter was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord, meaning Jesus, turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. You know, this must be one of the most blatant, in-your-face, crystal-clear examples of denying Christ in all of Scripture. 
I mean, talk about something in someone's past that they wish they could erase. Surely this qualifies. I mean, this was not just a denial in principle, right? I mean, God, there's many stories where people deny God in principle in a thousand different ways. But this was not just in principle, but in practice. I deny that I know this man. And it wasn't, just a, it wasn't just a denial, it was a public denial. And it wasn't just a public denial, but it was a public denial in front of unbelievers. And it was also one that had been predicted just hours earlier. I mean, talk about being warned in advance, right? And yet in spite of these words from Jesus to Peter, you know, Peter had said, I'll go with you wherever you go. I'll, I'll be there. I'll be on your side, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And that is exactly what happened. And and can you imagine? Can you imagine what it must have been like to hear that rooster crow and to look up and see Jesus with sadness on his face looking back at you? I think I'd probably go outside and find it to be cold and dark and bitter as well. Well, what does Peter do with this? I mean, again, if if ever there was a situation that you would want to erase, you know, this is it. What, What does Peter do? Now, here is where I wish we had a little more detail from the Bible, but let, let's see what we can gather here. Uh, the next thing we know about Peter is not until chapter 20 of the book of John, where, where, where Peter runs to the empty tomb. He and John are in this foot race to the empty tomb. It's Sunday morning. Uh, Mary has come back, said he's not there. They rush to the tomb. They find, indeed, that it is empty. The next thing we know is that Jesus appears to his disciples as they're still kind of holed up in Jerusalem. They're still hiding from the authorities for fear of them. Jesus shows up, and it says that the disciples are, are overjoyed to see Jesus. We could imagine maybe that included Peter. We don't know. There's no record of Jesus and Peter talking on this occasion. And then Jesus appears to the disciples again a week later. And again, there's there's no record of a conversation between Peter and Jesus. But notice this. In spite of the lack of explicit evidence of Peter and Jesus interacting, we do know at least one thing about what Peter did during this time. And it is a first point about God's plans for your past. Point number one. When your past is overshadowing your present... Confess and repent. Confess and repent. Now again, it's true that we do not have the recorded words of Peter's confession, nor do we know exactly when they were said. Maybe he confessed and repented immediately afterwards outside of that courtyard. Maybe it was during one of the times that Christ appeared to the disciples. Whatever the case, we do know for a fact that he took this indispensable step of confessing and repenting. You say, well, how do you know? Because in just a moment, we are going to read another story of Peter. And in that story of Peter, Jesus is going to ask Peter to do something that he never would have asked him to do except that Peter had already confessed and repented of his sin. It is indeed a very important first step to disarming the power of a sinful past. Now, some people are tempted to think that we don't need to spend much time on this idea of confession and repentance because they say it's a fairly obvious one. 
And I would agree, it's obvious. In fact, you don't have to be a Christian to have this be obvious to you. I mean, these, most people understand that this is just something that needs to be done if you do wrong. If you have messed up, fess up. If you did wrong, resolve not to do that wrong again. Kind of common sense, right? It's obvious. So let me just ask you, have you done the obvious? If you are sitting here right now and you sense that your past sins are are casting a shadow, they're holding you back, have you confessed and repented? Now, as far as the mechanics of confession and repentance are concerned, this is not a difficult thing. This is not complicated. If you sinned against God, confess it to God. If you sinned against someone else, confess it to them. If you sinned privately, confess it privately. If you sinned publicly, confess it publicly. And with your confession, resolve also not to repeat the harm that you did. But that said, after doing this for almost three decades now, I have discovered that when you talk about confession and sin, there's at least three things that everybody needs to understand about those practices. I'm going to put some stuff up here on the screen. First of all, if your sin was against someone else and it was particularly severe or if your sin was a public one, please get good counsel first before you make your confession. Get good counsel first before you make your confession. Talk to a trusted Christian friend of long experience or to a Christian counselor before you make your confession. Now, how come? Why, why, why would I say this is good practice? Because often in these kinds of situations, we are so emotionally involved in what happened that it's very difficult to see it objectively. And talking to someone of long experience with Christ before you take action steps can help you to do things in the right way and at the right time. Let me just give you an example. Uh, Within the last 20 years, within 10,000 miles of here, uh, a man came to me and uh, told me that he had committed what I'm going to call a financial sin at his place of work. And he said that uh, he, his plan was is that he was going to go to his work without any prior warning. He was going to call a meeting of everybody on his floors, quite a few employees and his boss. And there he was going to announce what had happened, what, what, what he had done. And I said, well, tell me, tell me the details of what happened. He said, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert in your line of work, but you know, help, help me out here a little bit to understand. And as he told me the story, it, it seemed to me that there was a pretty high possibility that not only were the rest of his co-workers not harmed by this, but that they didn't even know about it. And I said, I'll tell you what, why don't you indeed confess, but go to your boss first, just, just the two of you. Okay, now, he's, he's going he's gonna to hit the ceiling. He's going to be mad. He's going to be upset. But after the dust has settled a little bit in that conversation, then ask him if there are other people that need to be part of this conversation. Okay. He said, okay. So he went to his boss, and he confessed what he had been doing. And indeed, the boss hit the roof. He was pretty upset about it. And uh, then after the dust had settled, the, the man asked his boss, he said, well, you know, should I be talking to other people here? You know, are other people engaged? And long story short... Not only were the rest of the office workers not harmed, they indeed had absolutely no idea about it. And if this man, who was wanting to to come clean and and to make this thing right, if he had gone and just announced this to the office, there could well have been collateral damage to people who were not even involved in his sin. 
You know, announcing stuff like that, sometimes people run with stuff without fully understanding things. Maybe it could have generated some bad PR for the company that wasn't justified. You see, as it turns out, the man had indeed messed up, but it was rectifiable. And there was, no, in fact, in the end, kind of miraculously, the man was not even fired, okay? But had he gone and followed his initial plan, it could have been disastrous for other people who had no part in that. So when it comes to confession and repentance, do indeed follow God's plan in dealing with your past and be wise in doing so. Second point regarding confession and repentance is this. Repentance is a gift, so ask for it. You know how it is when you commit a sin, right? You are dying to confess it and repent. You're just loving the opportunity. Today is the day that I... If that's your attitude, we should probably talk afterwards. There's some things we should work through with you, right? Most of the time, when it comes to confessing to somebody, to repentance, general repentance, we're not real anxious to do it. You know, maybe it's shame. Uh, Maybe it's stubbornness. Maybe we're convinced that God won't have us back. In times like that, we must remember that even repentance is a gift from God. In fact, not coincidentally, it was Peter himself who later proclaimed this in Acts 5, verse 31. He did it with power and enthusiasm. Notice this, Acts 5, 31. God has exalted Christ to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might, what's the next two words? Give repentance and forgiveness of sins. In other words, this is a full package deal. We serve a full service God. He knows that sin has made it, that our natural inclination is not to make this thing right, to not go back, to not confess. And so he gives us this gift. So if you are not wanting to confess and repent, then I would suggest that you begin with what's sometimes called the impossible prayer. The impossible prayer is this, and it can be used not just for this, but for most anything. The impossible prayer goes like this. God, you know that I do not want to do what you are asking me to do, but I am willing to be made willing. I am willing to be made willing. And then ask for repentance. Ask for that change of heart. And the sincere request asking for repentance, it will be granted. It will come. And when God implants that desire in your heart, whatever your sin was, get to it. Be specific. Confess it. Don't bob or weave or mince words. Don't evade your guilt. Claim it. Own it. Confess it. Be brief. This is your path to freedom. A third point to remember regarding confession and repentance is this. When we confess and repent, God forgives. (laughs) First service was a little sluggish. It's cold outside. They had just struggled to get that amen out of their mouths. But I know they meant it in their hearts. So let me just say this one more time. When we confess and repent, God forgives. Amen. amen. This is the foundation here of the gospel, is it not? I mean, what a launching point. God gives this to us freely and together. Just to remind us here, you know, 1 John 1, 9. Would you say this with me, please? One, two, three. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And all God's people said, amen, amen. 
You know, Ellen White, she talks a great deal about this, and I I thought she described this in in a great way. Steps to Christ, uh, pages 36 and 37. She says, you cannot atone for your past sins. You cannot change your heart and make yourself holy. But God promises to do all this for you through Christ. You believe, and this is her emphasis that's in here, not mine. You believe that promise. You confess your sins and give yourself to God. You will to serve Him. Just as surely as you do this, God will fulfill His word to you. If you believe the promise, believe that you are forgiven and cleansed, God supplies the fact. You are made whole. Just as Christ gave the paralytic power to walk when the man believed that he was healed, it is so if you believe it. Wow. And notice, she's not on a scale here. It's not like, you know, the the faith scale 1 to 10. If you can just muster a 6 on the faith scale, then God will forgive you. No, 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 no. Just trust Him. Believe in His promise. He will do it. In fact, she finishes with this. Do not wait to feel that you are made whole, but say, I believe it. It is so, not because I feel it, but because God has promised I'll tell you what, 30 30 years almost of doing this now, and to me, this is probably the the biggest way, certainly one of the biggest, if not the biggest ways, that people error. When when they have, when there's sin in their past, big, small, whatever, and and they they think that they confessed and and they went through and and they prayed, but they don't feel it. There was no lightning bolts, you know, the, the sky didn't part and birds didn't begin to sing, you know, all of this stuff. Well, I guess I'm not forgiven. No, 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 a thousand times no. Jesus has promised if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is a fact, not a feeling. Forgiveness is a fact, not a feeling. When you confess your sin and you repent, absolutely God forgives. He's not looking for ways to keep you out of the kingdom. He's looking for ways to bring you in. And this is where it all begins. Praise the Lord that His promises are true and can be trusted. Now, as good as all of this is, there are more blessings yet to come. And we need to get back into the story with Peter here to see see what's going to happen next. After an unspecified period of time, Peter and some of the other disciples head out to the Sea of Galilee to fish. Now, remember here, there, there's been a couple of times where they've seen Jesus. They went to the empty tomb, a couple of times seeing him, and now they're, they're kind of in limbo. You know, they're, they're kind of waiting for marching orders here. Uh, Jesus is not with them. He's doing other things. And so there's expenses. Things need to be paid for. Peter says, hey, let's go fish. We know how to do that, and then we'll buy clothes and food, etc. So they go to the north end of the Sea of Galilee to go fishing. And I tell you what, what, what? What a trip down memory lane for the kingdom this must have been. I've been to that part of Galilee, and, and it, I mean, it's just packed with what Jesus did. And for the disciples, Peter and the others that were there, this, this must have just been amazing to see. For instance, that very shoreline was the place where Jesus called them out of their boats into his ministry. The town of Capernaum was probably just a stone's throw away. It's right there on the shore, that, that northern, northern shore of Galilee, where, where Jesus had performed you know, these great miracles and preached these marvelous sermons. The hill where the feeding of the 5,000 took place, it was probably just over the rise where they could see there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And of course, this is the very body of water where Jesus and Peter for a little bit walked on the water. 
on that night of the great storm. I mean, what a place. And yet, all could not have been well in the heart of Peter. Because even though Peter had confessed and repented and been forgiven by God, praise the Lord, Peter still knew that that was not all he was created for. In fact, let's let this sink in. Peter at this time does not know his status with regard to, key word here, ministry for Jesus. Jesus has forgiven him, but can Jesus still use him? Can Peter ever work with Jesus again? Is he damaged goods? Was his denial of Christ proof that the Lord has no use for him any longer? And just to bring it down here to the present, have you felt that way before? Maybe you're experienced in spiritual things and you believe in forgiveness and you've confessed, you've repented, you've been forgiven. But now you kind of wonder, where does that leave you? Are you going to be kept at arm's length forever just outside the inner circle? What is Jesus going to do with you? Let's find out. John chapter 21, verse 4. Page 732 in your red Bible. Page 732, John chapter 21, beginning with verse 4. The disciples have indeed gone fishing. They have gone fishing all night, but they have not caught a single fish. The sun is beginning to come up over the horizon. Verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. A second point about God's plan for your past is this. When your past is dragging you down, swim towards Jesus. When your past is dragging you down, swim toward Jesus. You know, whatever the negative feelings were that Peter was experiencing at that moment, he now does precisely the right thing, and he ignores them. For someone greater than his feelings is now present. Peter knows who it is who is standing there on the shore. It is Jesus. And because it is Jesus, that is where he is going to go no matter what, and so should you. Because when your past is dragging you down, swim towards Jesus. When your past is dragging you down, pray to Jesus. Even and especially when you don't feel like praying to Him, dive into those spiritually murky waters and do it. Open your Bible and read it, even when you don't feel like reading it. When your past is dragging you down, spend time with other caring Christians, such as a small group or a Sabbath school class, even and especially when you don't feel like doing so. Because when we do these things, 
When we swim toward Jesus, sooner or later, something like this is going to happen. Verse 9. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. A third thing to know about God's plans for your past is that if you swim toward Jesus, He will feed you. It is going to happen sooner or later. If you swim toward Jesus, He will feed you. In other words, the healing and restoration process will begin. It's going to happen sooner or later. The dryness will stop. The gap will be bridged. Now, we don't know exactly what Peter was expecting when he arrived on the shore after his swim, but we do know what he received. He received food, sustenance. He received energy for the task ahead, fuel for looking forward, not backward. You see, all sin harms us. It may harm other people too, of course, but it inevitably always harms us. Forgiveness is therefore not an end, but a beginning, the beginning of the healing that needs to take place. And if we keep swimming towards Jesus, we will find that what looked like a mile from shore is less. What looked impossible ends in a good meal served by Jesus himself. If we keep swimming, the word of God will once again bear fruit in our lives. Prayer will once again seem alive. Fellowship with others will be reborn. This will happen if we keep swimming For God himself is the one who has said, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And yet there is still more. For even once Peter has been fed, Jesus has something to say to him. And this happens to be what is surely one of the most beautiful and encouraging passages in all of the Bible. Verse 15, please. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Probably sweeping with his hand, looking at the other disciples. Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The fourth part of God's plans for your past is simply this. God will call you back into his service. He will do it. You know, we we could go into uh, the very interesting linguistic qualities of this passage. There's some subtleties in the Greek and the different words for do you love me and Peter's responses, etc. We could go into all of that. It's very good. But suffice it to say, the overarching message here is crystal clear. Jesus is reinstating Peter. What else does feed my sheep mean? And he does it three times. Uh, No coincidence that Peter denied Jesus three times. The Spirit of Prophecy tells us that Peter and the other disciples to that point considered Peter to be beyond restoration. They knew what he had done in that courtyard when Jesus was on trial. In Jesus' hour, arguably of greatest need, Peter had publicly denied his Lord. And the other disciples and Peter were thinking that Peter was done. And here Jesus says three times, Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Peter, I need you. I still need you. Come on back. Let's do ministry together again. You see, forgiveness really is just the beginning. It is an opening of the door, yes, to being healed. And that healing ultimately means being reinstated with Christ and to once again be a soldier in the army of the Lord. Now, now it is true, Jesus may not call you back to the same service that you were doing before. He did with Peter, but it may not be the same for you. There may be circumstances that prevent that. But that you are called back into his service in some profoundly meaningful way is certain. It is God's will for you. He will make just the right choice. He will choose just the right ministry or ministries for you. And at the right time, he will place you where you are most suited and most needed And you will be back by his side, working together with him again. So if you are listening to these words right now, and your past is casting a shadow over your present, I just got to ask you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? God has plans for you. If you don't have it yet, ask for repentance. Ask for repentance. Pray that impossible prayer. God will give it to you. Confess your sin. Repent of it. Christ is longing to forgive. And then dive into that water. Head towards the shore where Jesus has prepared a nourishing meal for you. He will feed and heal your soul. And yes, he is longing to call you into his service once again, cleansed, clear, and free. You don't have to be suffocated by the shadows of your past whether it's for cheating on a spelling test or for anything else. For the blood of Jesus is the divine eraser. Erasing our guilt, removing it from us and opening the door to healing, to health and to ministry again. Praise the Lord that God has such great plans for our past. Amen.
There may be some of you here today that as you look back at the shadows being cast from the past onto your present, are wanting to make a new start. I want to invite you to come and see me after the service today if you would like to consider being rebaptized. If you have been baptized in the past, if you have li- lived a life that is very deviant since then with what the Lord would have you to do, come and see me. It might be that rebaptism is a new entrance into the kingdom of God for you. And for those of you maybe listening that maybe you've never been baptized, but after seeing some of the things here with Peter, you'd like to enter into the kingdom of God clean, fresh, and forgiven. Come and see me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, for all of us listening, Lord, whether we are here now or online now or delayed online later on, I pray, Lord, that if there be anyone that is carrying a load of guilt from the past, that this would be their day of freedom. May today be their day, Lord, that they accept your grace, your goodness, and your forgiveness. May today be the day that they start afresh. May today be the day that they begin to walk with and in you. This is our prayer, and we ask it in your name. Amen. Amen.